You're listening to Ann Arbor Stories. I'm Rich Reddy. Muskegon claims him because he was born there. Ypsilanti claims him because, for most of his childhood, he lived in a trailer park on the outskirts of town, Pittsfield Township for the record. But it's Ann Arbor, along with cocaine, meth, acid, booze, pills, and ambition, that deserve the credit for turning James Newell Osterberg into Iggy Pop. Handfuls of ice, coins, even lit cigarettes arc through the air. Along with the occasional bottle, beer and champagne, whatever would fly, all of it thrown at the stage that sub-zero February night in Detroit in 1974. The band on stage had hired a biker gang from Ipsy called God's Children to keep the peace that night, and even they couldn't keep the crowd in check. Luckily, the large stage at the Michigan Palace made the band harder to hit. Iggy Pop was running on fumes, blood full of drugs, booze, anger, determination. There was no joy in his performance, just a whole lot of spite. Puffy face, exposed ribs, shaggy hair, but still his piercing blue eyes. He taunted the crowd, gyrating his hips and mocking them between every song. I don't care if you throw all the ice in the world, he rasped into the mic. You're paying five bucks and I'm making 10,000, baby, so screw ya. The show was recorded live on a reel-to-reel, and it wasn't going well. Iggy's usually patter with the crowd was more hostile than usual. Grievances were aired. Every insult provoked projectiles. Well, more than normal. And rage. Hate. They wanted blood. Iggy was wise not to dive into the crowd, to wade into their midst like he'd done a week before at a dive bar called the Rock and Roll Farm out in Wayne. That night, he waded into a crowd of 120. So many motorcycles parked outside. Iggy in a leotard, screaming at the bikers in a way that bikers aren't used to be screamed at. Stepping off the stage and pushing through the crowd, which parted before the 100-pound front man, till he came face to face with one of the biggest men in the room, 300 pounds at least, dressed in dark denim and the colors of the Scorpions Motorcycle Club out of Detroit. Iggy looked up at the giant, who punched him square in the stupid face, knocked him on his ass. No fun. The set was bad at its best. The Stooges out of time and erratic. Iggy can be heard yelling on the live recording, counting his bandmates back to the beat. Give me just the drums. It's the only way you're ever gonna get it right. The poor play didn't help matters with the crowd. A quarter hit the bassist in the head, opening his scalp up and leaving a scar he would see decades after this disastrous night. The final song was an angry version of Louie Louie with all new lyrics extra vulgar for the adoring fans. I never thought it would come to this, baby, Iggy yelled, the Stooges pounding away on their instruments. Nine years earlier, the crowd threw candy at Iggy Pop. Tonight, ice and lit cigarettes and coins and those big, fat, heavy champagne bottles. And then it was over, mercifully, with the Stooges and the 1,200 in attendance that night. Thank you very much to the person who threw this glass bottle at my head and nearly killed me, Iggy yelled after the last bass line. But you missed again. Keep trying next week. That night's recording became the Metallic KO album, which would achieve cult status after its release two years later. Members of The Clash, Joy Division, The Sex Pistols, Red Hot Chili Peppers, and The White Stripes would listen to the live recording from that fateful night. 
Over and over again, hearing Iggy slur at the crowd, taunt them. The band lose the beat, find the beat, lose it again. But no one knew this that night. That night, the Stooges limped backstage, drank and medicated and parted ways, and finally split. Split, split. The Stooges were no more. That freezing cold night in 1974 was the end of a chaotic experiment, maybe the end of frontman Iggy Pop, who flew back to L.A., his spirit broken, convinced he was hexed. But that's L.A. and Detroit and a dive bar in Wayne. Where did it all start? First, a hospital in Muskegon. Then in a 50 by 20 foot vagabond trailer on lot 96 of the Coachville Mobile Home Park at 3423 Carpenter Road. Then Ann Arbor. James Osterberg was a good kid, student council president, vice president of the bait club. He didn't smoke, drink, or do drugs. He wore cashmere sweaters and penny loafers. He was on the high school golf team, for God's sakes. James Osterberg, no, Iggy Pop, on the high school golf team. He was a drummer, too, in a band called Megaton 2. Then in the Iguanas, a straight arrow pop band with matching sport coats and haircuts you could set your watch to. He was a great performer. People liked him, and he loved the attention. James jumped to the prime movers, a band with enough promise to prompt him to drop out of the University of Michigan, quit his job at the old discount records at the corner of State and Liberty, and devote himself to music. The prime movers were pretty good. They might go places. Then the Doors played that famous homecoming dance in 1967. It was homecoming in Ann Arbor, and despite the Michigan football team carrying a 1-3 record, the crowd was excited for the big Friday night dance and a special appearance by this year's headline act, The Doors. Their debut album had just come out that year and Light My Fire was number two on the charts. The band took the stage, minus lead singer Jim Morrison, and played the opening riff to one of their songs again and again and again. The crowd got restless, smattering of booze. The band left the stage, returned a little while later, this time with Morrison. A very, very drunk Jim Morrison, who started swearing a lot, loudly, into the microphone. He stumbled and stammered, and the straight-laced homecoming crowd stood open-mouthed in shock. The football players covered their date's ears and the women blushed. This wasn't the hippest crowd in town. Morrison missed his marks. He forgot lyrics, mostly berating the audience. He was hammered and in a mood, fighting with his bandmates over ice cream. See. The rest of the Doors wanted to stop for ice cream on the drive from Detroit to Ann Arbor, but Jim thought ice cream was for babies. So while they licked their cones like little kids, Jim forced a stop at a local liquor store and sat in the back seat the whole drive sullenly getting loaded. Partway through the set, the drummer and the guitarist walked off the stage, leaving keyboardist Ray Manzarek to abandon his setup and fumble with some blues riffs on the guitar in an attempt to salvage this night, which was unsalvageable. The crowd yelled and booed at the retreating doors, a disaster of a night, and James Osterberg, there for the entire set, was delighted. In Morrison, he saw the intensity and aggression that he wanted to project in his own performance. Leather pants, oiled hair, a hit record under his belt, taunting the crowd, which was rushing the stage, screaming unintelligibly. Jim Morrison was a goddamn role model, and James Osterberg thought, I can do that. A few days later, he got his shot. Over a drug-fueled late-night Three Stooges marathon 
at a house they rented at 1324 Forest Court, Osterberg, along with brothers Ron and Scott Ashton, and Dave Alexander formed a brand new band. They called themselves the Psychedelic Stooges, later shortened to the Stooges, and Iggy Pop crawled out of James Osterberg. Iggy, a nickname he acquired from his time with the Iguanas, and Pop borrowed from a local junkie named Jim Pop. They played their first show just 11 days after the doors were booed off the stage at Homecoming. The Stooges debuted at a private party on Halloween night, performing an insane set that forced the band's brand new manager to quit on the spot and return to his job teaching. The Stooges booked their first public show in January of the next year, playing the Grand Ballroom in Detroit. The day before, Ron Ashton painted Iggy's guitar in day-glow colors for the big occasion, but he painted over the pickups, ruining the guitar completely. Iggy used it anyway. The Stooges' opening act was a blender full of water which buzzed into the PA for 15 minutes. When the Stooges finally took the stage, Iggy walked out in a full-length nightshirt, golf shoes, white mime makeup, and an afro made of tinfoil. Scott Ashton banged a pair of 55-gallon oil drums with hammers. The music was okay, too. Iggy's antics grew more outrageous. Before taking the stage, he annihilated a buffet of drugs and booze, then shed most of his clothes within the first few songs. He smashed himself in the mouth with a microphone, rubbed raw meat and peanut butter on his chest, and carved wounds into his torso with a broken glass taken from bottles thrown from the crowd. He climbed PA stacks and lighting rigs. He waded into the crowd to pick fights. Sometimes he got punched in the face by huge bikers and dive bars. Occasionally, Ron Ashton flayed him on stage with a bullwhip. Ice cream sad Jim Morrison ain't got nothing on Iggy Pop. When Elektra Records came to town to watch the MC5, they checked out this group that was making all the buzz and caught the Stooges show at the Michigan Union. They liked what they saw. The Stooges recorded their first album in four days, an album that would feature some of the most enduring punk songs of all time. With the advance money, they rented a house on the corner of Packard and Eisenhower and dubbed it the Fun House. Drugs, booze, and women followed. While Iggy had no shortage of female attention, he decided to settle down with a groupie everybody called Potato Girl. He married Wendy Weisberg on the lawn of the Fun House, Ron Ashton acting as best man. Instead of a tuxedo, he wore a full SS uniform. The marriage lasted a month. Live performances continued to be insane. The cult of Iggy and the Stooges grew. They recorded their second album in 1970 with all the promise in the world. But unlike the debut, it bombed. The Stooges and Iggy in particular started to wear on music execs and fans alike. They skipped shows because they were too messed up to perform. Live audiences dwindled and their label, Electra Records, dropped the Stooges in 1971. The fun house was bulldozed. The Stooges broke up for the first time. They'd reform in 1972 thanks in some weird way to Pop's friendship with David Bowie. They build themselves Iggy and the Stooges now. They recorded a third album and toured for several months, but booze and drugs eroded Iggy's constitution and his relationships until that fateful February night in 1974. Ice, the coins, the bottles, that whole thing. But that night was just the end of Iggy Pop's second act. There'd be a third, a fourth, and a fifth. A sixth? Who could keep track? 
Just last year, Iggy Pop showed up on Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown, wearing sensible glasses, a sensible cable knit sweater, and talking about healthy eating. Shades of James Osterberg in his days at Tappan Junior High. At 68, he's outlived all the original Stooges and occupies a rare place in music today. Pioneer, an influencer, one of the most intimidating performers of all time. Though James Osterberg was born in Muskegon and lived with his folks near Ipsy, Iggy Pop, punk legend and rock and roll hall of famer, was born in Ann Arbor. <laughs> 